0: You're listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. This week, we're continuing our study of the book of 2 Peter. We're calling Be Diligent. But first, here's a special announcement from senior pastor Lance Bourgeois
1: and our chaplain, Reggie Coe. We've been through a number of different transitions going on uh, in the life of the church. Life just dictates that uh, from time to time that we need to uh, assess where we are and what we have and what we can do and and how to move forward in that. Uh, And one of these transitions coming up, and I've asked Reggie to come up and share that with you.
2: Good morning. That's as good as it gets. Good morning. Oh, there you go thank you. I just want to make sure y'all are all awake. Uh, In 1978, we moved here at the invitation of the elders of Grace Church to shepherd this family of believers alongside Tom and Charma Rogers. It was not long before we made friends with so many in this church body, too many for us to name now. And so many of you whom we've met early on, remain some of our dearest friends. As we stayed longer, we made more friends. And Becca and I would say that probably one of the greatest gifts of being a part of Grace Church is the gift that we receive to be a part of this body with you. Several years ago, someone would ask me or Tom, when are you all going to retire And we casually say, oh, probably in three to five years, never meaning it, Um, but the elders in 2018 began to seek to help me create a process that would give me a path to retirement. With 2018 as the start date, that would put me retiring on the five-year plan to sometime in 2023. In the process of the discussion, we decided that sometime in 2022, I would go to halftime, eventually retiring in September of 2023. Staying on the pastoral team until 2023, will let Beck and I um, complete 45 years of ministry here at Grace Church. Thank you. This is to let you know that my halftime ministry will begin June the 1st of 2022. I will still be responsible for senior adult ministry, still be doing counseling, still performing some weddings, and being a part of funerals. As of June the 1st, 2022, I will not have office hours, but will work from home. The church has set up an office space in the office area that we can use for counseling myself and others as well. To reiterate, I will begin my halftime June the 1st of this year and continue in that capacity to 2023. Becca and I are truly grateful to the Lord for the years we have gotten to invest our lives here in Grace Church. We have had the privilege privilege of being a part of an elder-led church We have also been a part of this church staff and have seen it grown from just two of us and a secretary to what our staff is today. What a blessing. The Lord has grown us in our lives and our ministries and has grown our church body and our staff. Getting to be a part of this church and a part of the leadership team of this body of believers means more than we can fully express. The elders and their care have been truly significant. And to be able to share 40 years of life and pastoral ministry with Tom and Charma Rogers has impacted us in more ways than we can say. Charma's continued love and investment for us still touches us and shapes us. I was glad when it came time to add a new senior pastor that the elders asked Lance to come and fill that position. I believe he was the man to take the reins and take us in the next steps. We have a great staff and quality people in all the places of ministry. And to you in this room and those who may be watching through live streams, Beck and I sincerely thank you for your love and care for us and our family. Now I hope you're not clapping because I'm finally leaving.
1: <laughs> Always with a joke. Um, so I met Reg in, in uh, 1997. Ellen and I were up visiting the church, and uh, Reggie. This seems shocking to me now, knowing him like I do now. But his, his cards were so close to his chest the reason. because, well, well, there were some reasons. But anyway, so <laughs> Ellen nothing to do with him. Ellen, there was a situation that had happened long before he knew me that created this moment. So, we're walking through the hall, and Ellen and I kept thinking, man, Reggie doesn't like us at all. I mean, this guy is just so distant and aloof, which isn't him at all. And so, we're walking down the hall uh, at one point, and all of a sudden, he leans over and we passed the nursery rooms over on Cedar Elm, and he said, one day, little Lance and little Ellen will grow up in that nursery. And uh, which turned out to be prophetic. But we, Ellen and I kind of looked at each other like, hey, maybe, maybe this could go somewhere. Somewhere in there, he did say, hey, by the way, here's the deal. If you come to Grace Church, you don't ever get to leave because we come here and we just stay forever. Let me just tell you this. The average term for a pastor to go serve in a pulpit ministry is four to five years. Four to five, not 45, four to five years, which means the average pastor in a 45-year time period would have served in nine churches. Reggie Coe, the story of Grace Church cannot be told apart from Reggie Coe. He is so central to who we are as a church, and the fact that he has been here and the legacy that he has helped create, he is an example of a guy who graduated seminary and went and gave his life in the ministry of a local church, and we're better for it because of him and his investment his heart for this church and this community this church's care for him and Becca and the family as well is what created the opportunity for him to be here for 45 years so he's a gift we're going to miss him he's still going to be around he will still have influence he'll still serve uh, on our adult ministry team and be around you'll certainly still see him in church but he's earned the right not to maintain office hours anymore he has earned this privilege and so uh, we're grateful for him and wanted to share that with you. you know, this creates huge gaps in what we've been doing as a church, and so there will be more transitions that we're trying to figure out how to move pieces around. You'll hear about that in, in the coming months as we figure that out. So why don't you join me in prayer, and let's give thanks for, for Reg and, and for Becca and uh, continue on in worship this morning. Father, thank you for the privilege uh, of, of knowing the coast. Father, you are the God who provides. You have always been faithful. In 1978, you provided Uh, the coast to come here. And Father, we are better for it. We're grateful for it. We love them. Thank you for your provision. Father, you still will provide. You will still lead us forward uh, in what you you call us to do. And so, Father, we are grateful for that. Father, as we continue to set our our sights on you this morning, as we worship and gather for the purpose uh, of worshiping you, the one who provides, the one who loves us so well, we give you thanks and we dedicate our hearts in this time to you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. So, there's a phrase, I'm guessing you've heard it before, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Now, you can do some research and try to figure out where that phrase first originated. We see it in Scripture. It seems to go back and even predate Scripture. We see it as far back as Aesop's fables. Now, if you're familiar with those, the one that you may be familiar with in particular was an 1867 translation of this story. As the story is told, it goes like this. Once upon a time, a wolf resolved to disguise his appearance in order to secure food more easily. Encased in a skin of a sheep, he pastured with the flock, deceiving the shepherd by his costume. In the evening, when the evening came, he was shut up within the fold by the shepherd. The gate was closed. The entrance was made thoroughly secure. Later that same evening, though, the shepherd returning to the fold, during the night to obtain meat for the next day, mistakenly caught the wolf instead of the sheep and killed him instantly. The idea being that someone who hides a malicious intent under the guise of kindness. Now, I tell you, when Ellen and I got married all those years ago and we pack up and we move to Dallas and we start seminary, we happen into a, a large Bible church down there uh, that's very like-minded with us, and they had this large young adult Sunday school class. And so, we make our way in. The teacher I actually happen to know because he was a theology professor of mine that same semester. And so, we walk in there, and he breaks us into groups, and here was the question, write down your list of the doctrines of Scripture that you're willing to die for, Okay. So, we break into groups, and we're all writing out our list. And, you know, I mean, we're, we're putting some, some great stuff, right? So, as you would imagine, across this, there's probably 20 or 25 tables of, of groups working on this. And so, they start collecting them, and so he, uh, the uh, teacher would say, okay, give me what's on your list. And so, he'd go through that. He wrote those five, eight, 10, whatever things up on the board, and then he'd go to the next table and said, did you add anything to that, or did you just duplicate the list? And so, we would add, and by the time we finished, we had a huge list. I mean, there's 35, 50 things on that list, right? And so, then he comes to, and he makes the point, and he said, I remember him with his dry erase marker up against the board. He goes, you know, I believe this. I think this is true. I think this is the most consistent way to interpret Scripture, but I'm not dying for it. And he'd scratch it off. And he started going through the list. And so, as he got way, to the end, he said, here's what I would tell you. The older I get, the shorter my list is of what I'm willing to die for. And so, as he began to talk us through some of those things that we start thinking through, what are the essential? Not doctrinal differences. We have brothers and sisters in Christ who we will spend eternity with that hold to different things. If you're new to Grace Church, you may have walked in here and said, well, that's not the way my other church or background would have taught that. That's fine. I'm not talking about minor doctrinal differences. We have reasons for believing what we believe, and we think that they're consistent, but we're not talking about doctrinal differences here. When I talk about a wolf in sheep's clothing in our churches, what are the kind of things I'm talking about? I'm glad you asked. Like this one, the authority and the inerrancy of Scripture is we cannot and will not let go of that. The moment we think that this book is not authoritative for us, then we have to decide which parts of it are authoritative and which ones are not. That's not our role. Our role is to uphold the fact that Scripture is authoritative and inerrant. Or the Trinity is that God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, three distinct natures, three different personalities, all three God, equally God. We have to hold that the full deity and humanity of Christ, that necessitates a virgin birth. We're not letting go of that. If you have somebody come in and teach something contrary to that, that's a wolf, okay? Spiritual lostness of the human race is that we are lost spiritually. And if God doesn't intervene and come and pursue us and woo us, then we will remain lost. But because of the substitutionary atonement and the bodily resurrection of Christ, we have redemption in that based on his life, his work on the cross, and what he conquered walking out of the grave. Salvation by faith alone in Christ alone. We've got to hold that. This is a core doctrine to our faith. And then the physical return of Christ, okay? So if you're thinking, okay, I wish I had that list again, here's your list, okay? And if you're a person that wants to take a picture with your phone, you can pull out your phone and take a picture of the slide. But let me say this. We can have doctrinal differences with brothers and sisters in Christ who may see things differently. I would tell you that these seven things are so essential to our faith that we can't release any of these things. And so if you're sitting here and you're saying, why would we highlight those? Because if there's wolves coming in to our churches, we better be able to identify what a wolf is. And so, when we come together this morning, and if you were with us in weeks one and two of this study, you may look up and say, now, wait a minute chapter one was pretty great, right? We've got these divine promises. We've got these divine nature. We've got this divine power. God's calling us if we're going to be effective, if we want to bear fruit, that we need to lean into these seven virtues. And so that sounded pretty encouraging. I like that. And then last week, we talked about the fact that there's prophecy and there's eyewitnesses things for us to cling to. And it sounded really good and we can trust it. And life feels like it's really dark sometimes. And so we've got this lamp that we can walk with that gives us guidance. I like that. You know why he told us that? Because he's about to tell us we better invest in building our spiritual life, chapter one, because there are wolves in sheep's clothing coming in our midst, chapter two. So if you're with me, Open up your copy of scripture if you would. 2 Peter chapter 2, as we're going to look at the first 10 and a half verses of this, and we're going to work through this uh, rather methodically to try to understand exactly what he wants to tell us. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1, Peter writes this But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false prophets Peter begins, he takes us to this idea, and he begins with false prophets. There had been a long history of false prophets in the time of Israel. I mean, they were familiar with false prophets. That's why they had standards in what, how you would actually punish false prophets. He said, you know, we've heard about those in history. Just know this, the day of false prophets are not over. We're just calling them false teachers now. And so these false teachers, they're like counterfeits. And you and I could say, well, I mean, who falls for a counterfeit, Right? Well, I got to tell you, you could probably pass something counterfeit in front of me, and I may not catch it. You see, by nature, something that's a counterfeit has to be so close to the original is that you could confuse the two. It's not like you could make a counterfeit that's way outlanded. It has to just be right there. And its words are, we've got false teachers. They're counterfeits. They look like the real deal, but they're, they're fake. They're not worth it. They don't have value. And they've infiltrated our churches. And all of a sudden, we've got a problem because we need to figure out what we're going to do. He actually tells us where they've come in secretly, right? You see, for something to be untruthful, it can be the opposite of what the original was. But you know what? It doesn't have to be that far away. It can just be one derivation off, just one off. And right here, it may say, well, that's kind of close, but, you know, down the line, it's just going to keep getting further and further. Because the idea of what he's saying here is this idea is that it's coming alongside. Is they bring it alongside, like, here's truth, and we're going to stay on the truth. And these counterfeit people, they take something, and they just bring it right alongside truth, right? It doesn't have to be over here. If it was over here, we were like, oh, I'm not buying that. It's when the counterfeits take what's true, and they take something that is maybe only one derivative off, and they run it right alongside the truth. And now you and I have to decide, how exactly do I split those things? Because maybe that seems like it flows from one to the next. How do we do it? We don't want to do anything secretive. That's why we invite you when you come in, grab a Bible off the shelf, open up if you got, you know, some kind of device, open it up, go to the YouVersion app with us. You can follow along. Open up your copy of Scripture. We're not trying to get anything secretly by anybody. We want you to see what the Scriptures have said. We want you to see, are we adding anything that's going alongside, that's a counterfeit? Because ultimately, we're all responsible for that. Why? Because look at what they're doing. They're secretly bringing in destructive heresies. Destructive heresies. Anything that is not truthful. Now, all of a sudden, what we see is these people are apostate. He says, you know what? We've got problems because one is they're denying the master who bought them okay? They're secretly bringing in these things. And what happens is the gospel begins to get diminished, right? There's this good news of the gospel. God loves you. He wants a relationship with you. He's done everything to make that possible. He's extended you grace on the basis of who he is and what he did. And now you got somebody that says, yes, God loves you, and he wants to have a relationship with you, but you better straighten up your life. And behaviorally, you better do it. And now all of a sudden, they take these heresies, and they bring them right alongside Yeah, you're saved, but you better show that you're saved. You better earn that. He got you to the cross. Your behaviors are going to be what gets you from the cross forward, right? We're just going to bring that right alongside. And all of a sudden, the gospel begins to get diminished, which is why he comes in and says, it's destructive what is happening. Even denying the master. You know, these are people that are claiming Christianity. They're claiming to be teachers of the word, but they deny the master. They deny the master. Imagine you and I say, I'm a believer, I've trusted Christ, therefore Christ is my master. And these people are denying the master. And this is Peter. I mean, Peter denied Christ three times. That's part of his story of how God was at work in his life. He said, these guys are denying the master. And then we get this really interesting phrase, who bought them. The master who bought them. Now, let me give you a doctrinal difference that may be there based on your church background and the way that you were raised. One of the things that that theologians can, can make a lot out of is this idea of who did Jesus die for? Now, I will tell you that we believe that he died for everyone, okay? We would say the term that would come out of that would be this idea, unlimited atonement, is that he died for everyone, There's no limits on it. The other side is that it's limited atonement. He just died for those people who came to faith. And you and I can say, well, I mean, why are we talking about that? Well, who did Jesus die for? That seems to be a significant question. And so when we come to a passage like this, and we see in 1 Timothy, this is Paul, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Why does that matter? because if God wants you to be saved, did he actually make it possible for you to be saved by dying for you? Otherwise, if he didn't die for you, he could want you to be saved, but it's not possible. See, that's why we start saying this stuff matters. Paul goes on in the same passage, for there is one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for who? For all. The wolves? Yeah, even for the wolves, which is exactly what Peter says here, denying the master who bought them. He bought the wolves? Later in 1 Timothy 4, "'For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people.'" Even the wolves? Even the wolves. Especially those who believe, which is an interesting phrase. Especially those who believe. He's the Savior of all. Why? Because there is no Savior apart from Jesus Christ. He is the only redemption this world will ever have. But especially to those who believe. Why? Is because the intended purpose was to bring salvation to the, to, to the world. He died for everyone. It actually reaches its intended purpose and meets its goal when we come to faith. He's the Savior of all people. There's no other Savior. But it reaches its intended purpose in the life of those who come to faith. That's Paul, author of Hebrews. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. How about John? He is the propitiation for our sins. Stop for a second. Propitiation. The amount paid equals the amount due. If $10 was owed, he paid $10. Life was owed, he paid his life. He is the propitiation for our sins. He paid the amount due and not for ours only, but also all the wolves that are out there all the sins of the whole world. See, this idea is there in Scripture, and Peter's picking up on it. He's saying, you know what? These wolves that are out there, Jesus died for them. He wants to accomplish their salvation. But then he goes on to say this, bringing upon themselves swift destruction, you and I can say, well, wait a minute. I've heard some false teachers, and it doesn't seem very swift to me. He doesn't say it's going to be immediate. He says it's going to be swift when it comes it will take you away very quickly. Doesn't mean it has to be today. It's going to be every time somebody makes a false statement, that'd be a different world, wouldn't it? Somebody issues a false statement in teaching, and then they're just gone? No. See, it doesn't work that way. No, but when judgment comes, it's going to be swift. Now, if we begin thinking about this, some of what we find is this reality, right? He's talking to teachers and when we come to Scripture and we see James 3.1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Let me tell you, we are very aware of this reality uh, at, at our church. That's why we work on it, we work hard on it, we train, we consult one another, we work through our messages because we feel this very strongly. Why? Why? Because the moment somebody stands in front and opens up the Scriptures and says, thus saith the Lord, and is speaking on behalf of the Lord, the Lord says it matters to him because we're representing him and his word and his intentions in the message. And here he's talking about false teachers. He's talking about wolves because he loves the sheep. And we got wolves dressed as sheep coming in to destroy the sheep. All of it matters. How serious is it? Well, how about this? Jesus, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he was cast into the sea than he should cause one of these little ones to sin. All of a sudden, when we start looking at what's going on with false teachers, we start seeing, we can say, well, gosh, this scripture is really harsh. When we read through what he's saying, and God would say, you know what? These are my sheep. I love them. I died on the cross for them. I care about them. I want to pastor them. I want to shepherd them. I want to do this for them. And I've got somebody dressing up as a sheep coming in to lead them astray. It matters. And he is trying to communicate that to us. And we shouldn't be surprised. Look at what he says in verse 3. Excuse me, verse 2. They will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Well, yeah. You know why? Because Who doesn't want to follow somebody that's going to say that, right? John Lilly, I think, captures this well when he said, no doctrine, however senseless and monstrous, which under the guise of a religious faith ministers to the sensual appetites of men will ever want followers. You with me? You can have terrible doctrine, but if the appeal of any doctrine is follow your passions, follow your lead, then this is a faith that will never struggle to have people follow it, right? Now, Why is it significant? Because all of a sudden, when we look up, what we see is this. If you're denying the master who bought you, then somebody has to be master. And these false teachers have said, you know what? He's not the master, I'm the master. And we trade in the capital M master, Jesus, and we become a little M master, like, you know what? I'll control my own destiny. And what I want, I want. And I will pursue whatever I want. And at the end of the day, what I want is selflessness, nah. Sacrifice, nah. Me. I want my happiness. I want my joy. I want what I think feels good or will bring me the most happiness for the longest period of time. So, he says all of a sudden, you know what? All of a sudden, we become hedonistic, and we start pursuing things. See, it's interesting to me that Peter doesn't identify what false things they will teach because they can change with the culture. They could change with the time. Whatever is appealing in culture, he can change it. He said, but what he's saying here is, you know how you're really going to know a false teacher? They're going to deny Christ. You deny Christ, then everything else will fall apart. He said, but because this is the way they live, they claim the name of Christ, they're these false teachers, but because they don't follow a life to the master, he says, you know what? Our pathway will be blasphemed. Of course it will, because people are going to look at Christians and say, wait a minute, you claim to be a Christian, you claim to follow the way of Christ, but in the end, What you want to do in any given moment or situation or circumstance is what wins the day. You're no different than the rest of the world. And all of a sudden, oh, that's why we're going to blaspheme the path. Now we see even more why Christ says that's blasphemy. Because people are looking at you and saying, oh, that's the way of Christ? Christ says, my reputation's at stake. That's blasphemy when you live that way. And in their greed they will exploit you with false words. Well, yeah, now they're greedy. They're just trying to come over and take over your life because it's all about them. Even that word sensuality, elsewhere is where that's used. It's translated debauchery, filthy, lustful. They're greedy. It talks about a, you think about some kind of marketplace. It's just a dirty, crooked marketplace. He said, they've turned my churches into that with their teaching. He is up Said, they're trying to take advantage of you. They don't care about you. They're trying to exploit you for their own selfish gain. Matter of fact, where it says fake words or false words comes from the Greek word plastos, where we get the word plastic. Now, if I were to ask you how many of you have ever enjoyed a paper straw, I'll tell you you're lying. Nobody enjoys paper straws. Right? What's up with that? It's plastic, like this straw that can bend and mold and go back, that these people's words are like plastic. I can come to a group of people and I can shape it for them and then I can walk to another group and I can shape it to them. I can go to another group and I can shape it for them because my words are about me and I can exploit you because you don't matter. I'm the master of my life and what I want wins the day. And so it really doesn't even matter. You and I could say, well, wait a minute, that's not what you said last week. Doesn't matter. Last week was different. I changed. I bent. I, I was plastic. I did something else again. See, there's a lot going on with these false teachers. There's wolves in sheep's clothing. And you and I can look up and say, well, I don't get it. How do they get away with it? Look at the end of the verse. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. God isn't asleep. Judgment's waiting for them. It's not today. We may not see it today. It could be today. We may just not see it. It could be a seared conscience, and we might not see it. But make no mistake, when we read when Paul writes, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. That is a true ism. And when we talk about teachers incurring a stricter judgment, and God has said that, and then he talks about it'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea than lead somebody astray. And then we have God say, hey, what you sow, you will reap. Make no mistakes. God takes this very seriously. He does not like wolves in the pasture with the sheep. So you and I can look up and say, okay, doesn't see, I don't see it. You know, there, it's been said that ideas have consequences. Well, that that is true. Ideas do have consequences. If we think about ideas, it may have to change the way we think or process something. Ideas have consequences. You know what else is true? Bad ideas have victims. And that's what Peter is confronting, is that the bad ideas of these, these false teachers are having dire consequences for the sheep. And so, he's gone through these three verses and said, look, this is what characterizes these false teachers, And you and I could, and he says, and judgment's coming. And you and I could look up and say, I don't see it. I mean, I don't see it. I mean, I I get that you say that. I just don't see it. Are there any examples? And Peter says, oh, yeah, there's examples. You want no examples? He's about to give us three examples. And let me tell you, what he's going to do in this section, verses 4 through the middle of verse 10 is one sentence and it's called a conditional sentence. And so, we're going to read these three examples that he gives us, and each one of them he introduces with the word if. And as he does that, it really, because of the type of sentence it is, you could translate it since. It's not just if this is true, it is true, since it's true, okay? So, we're going to read through these, and then we all of a sudden, after all these sentences of that, we're going to get the conclusion to his sentence, that it gives us his example. I think this will make sense as we begin to walk through this, okay? Okay. Look with me, if you would, at verse 4. Here's our first. For if God, or since God, did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. That's the first one of them. Now, what we know about that is the first example that he gives us. Does God historically judge sin? Yes. First example, the work of Satan the work of Satan. There there are two things he really could be pointing to here. One could be when Satan fell from heaven and fallen angels went with him. It could be a reference to that. It could be Genesis 6, which led into the flood narrative, if you want to go back and read that. We're not exactly sure. But what we do know is this, is he's already cast them into hell and committed them to the chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. They've already been sentenced. They've already been found guilty. They just haven't had the judgment come yet. See, it is possible that God is restraining people in his judgment and we don't see the judgment yet. And that's talking about Matthew 25 and what's coming up. But know this, is based on Peter's argument, these false teachers will meet the same fate that the angels did. Judgment is coming. That's your first example. Look at the second example. Verse 5, if, since, he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. First, he judged Satan and Satan's work. Now, he judges the world. This is Genesis chapter 6, if you want to go read more about it. Now, I will tell you, Peter was marked by the flood story. We see it in 1 Peter, we see it here in 2 Peter, and it's going to come up again in 2 Peter. And that story, you may be familiar with it, that Noah was saved with seven others. It's Noah, his wife, his three boys, and their spouses. In a world that had gone crazy evil, there was one family that he saved. What was his life like? Well, he tells tells us Noah was a herald of righteousness. In a world that had gone crazy in sin and evil, there's a voice out there in the wilderness. It's like, this isn't right. This isn't what God wants. He wants more. He is a preacher of righteousness in the midst of a generation that is lost. There's always a faithful remnant. There's always a faithful remnant. Let me encourage you. I don't know what God's plans are for the future generations, but know this. God has never abandoned a generation ever. And when I hear people my age say, I just feel sorry for our kids and what they're gonna grow up in. I feel sorry for my kids' kids and what they're gonna grow up in. Let me just tell you this. You don't need to feel sorry for them. God did not call you to that future timeline. He's calling the next generations to it. Our job is to pray for them, not to feel sorry for them. Our job is to disciple them today so that when they get to that generation, they know this book so that when the wolves enter their pastures, they can identify who the wolves are. We don't need to be afraid for them, and we don't need to feel bad for them. God is raising up another generation to lead forward because He doesn't write anybody off. He didn't do it with Noah, and He's not going to do it to our kids. He's faithful And so we find ourselves in this situation where we say, okay, so what happened here? Well, remember we were talking about the swift, the judgment's going to be swift? Up until this point, it had never rained before. And you and I are like, let me come up with how God might judge people. God says, you haven't even begun. You can't keep up with me. You're like, God, what do you mean? I mean, bring judgment. He's like, I am, it's going to rain. And we're like, what is rain? He's like, it's where water is going to fall from the sky. But when it starts, it's not going to stop. And you and I could say, well, wait, what if the evildoers outnumber the other ones? God says, I'm not afraid. I will bring a flood. I will redeem and save who I save. I will save those that cling to righteousness. And everybody else, I will wash them away with a flood. And you want to talk about swift. They had time to build the boat. There was time. Noah, the preacher of righteousness, hey, get on the boat. I'm going to build a boat. But when judgment came, it was swift. It started raining and everything was destroyed but you know what? You could have looked until that rain, that first raindrop fell, and you could have said, God's asleep at the wheel. God, why aren't you doing something? And God would say, oh, I'm doing something. You just don't know it. Judgment is coming. What a moment. By the way, false teachers will meet this same fate. Just like the angels, just like the rest of the world sudden judgment. Here's your third example. Look at verse 6. If, since, by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. He judged Satan, he judged the world, and now he judges the flesh patterns of this world. You want to read this? Genesis chapter 19. Two cities reduced to ashes, It's an example of how God judges the ungodly. It's there. Unrestrained sin, hedonism, brings about judgment. That's how it works. That is the reality of it. Now, I'm going to say this. I think it's an interesting note. If you want to go back and read Genesis uh, 19, go read it. But in this, Peter doesn't even highlight what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is. And if you know the story, you probably know some of it. There's a lot there. We've got got people that are pursuing a level of sexual assault. We have people living in homosexual lifestyles. We have a father who tries to give a mob of men his daughters. But in a world where your false teachers are driven by their sensuality and now they've become hedonistic, what's the end result of that? I will be my own master. I'll be whatever I want to be. And we've got a story here with Sodom and Gomorrah where we see, you want to talk about how God feels about about people and about His sheep? When people become nothing more than your hedonistic pursuit for your own pleasure, God takes that very seriously. And so, all of a sudden, He says, you know what? I judge Satan. I judge the world. I judge the flesh. You know what? It's It's no secret. We live in a highly sexualized culture. And we're looking around and trying to figure out how to live in this. I hope you can join us next week for our culture conference with Dr. Yuan and his family. If you can come on Friday night and Saturday, that'd be great. The family will be here on Sunday morning. But what we're committed to is this. We know what happens to false teachers. We understand everything that's in the beginning of this chapter. Our question isn't what Scripture says. Our question is, how do we love a people group more effectively that we might draw them to Christ for a group of people who feels like the church hates them? How do we do that? Not change our truth. We understand teachers incur a stricter judgment, millstones around the neck. I don't want it. So how do we love people well in a way that we can draw people in and have the opportunity to address other false teachers in this world that are saying different things? That's why we want to do this, because all of this stuff that we're reading matters. Now, the reality is is in the same way that the false teachers will meet the same example of Satan and his angels, the same way that they will meet the reality of this world, is the same way they will meet or have the same fate as Sodom and Gomorrah. See, all of this matters. But for you and I to look up and say, where's my hope? Look at verse 7. And if he rescued righteous Lot, now let's just take a second, If you know the story of Lot, that feels a bit like a stretch, right? You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say godly Lot. It doesn't say spiritually mature Lot. It says righteous Lot, the one who is in a right relationship with God the Father, that he's looking towards Messiah. He's trusting in the Lord for the Lord's provision of salvation. He's righteous. Before the Lord, he stands righteous. We don't see a a ton of godly behavior from Lot but he doesn't say that he's godly. He says he's righteous. He's been declared righteous before God. He's in relationship with him. And by the way, he uses this word righteous three times in two verses about Lot. If by turning the, uh, verse seven, and if he rescued righteous Lot, look at Lot's condition, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. For as the righteous man lived among them day after day, He was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Have you been there? Righteous with God, and you feel like your soul is tormented by the evil of this world? The sexuality, the selfishness, the violence, the abuse, abortion, the trafficking, you name it. We've got wolves everywhere. And like Lot, I feel like Lot, distressed by the, sex, the sensual conduct of the wicked. You know why? Because we hold to a master, capital M, master. And God set us wrong. So they've got these lawless deeds. There's these unrestrained pursuit of self. There's this inner torture that it creates for those of us who know him. Do we give in? No, we stand there like Noah. We be that herald of righteousness in a generation that's lost. And we look out for those false teachers, those wolves who are there. Because he said all of this to get us to this point. Look at verse 9. If this is true, it is. If this is true, it is. If this is true, it is. He's built his entire case to bring us to this. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. Praise God. God, he did it with Noah, he did it with Lot, he can do it for us. Oh, no, no, no. You don't know how bad our generation is, God. God says, I've wiped out a generation with a flood. I've burned cities to the ground. I get it. But what I have shown you is I see the individual righteous person who's my child, and I will pull you out of it. That's who he is. That's what he does. The Lord knows how to do two things. He knows how to rescue the godly And, second half of the verse, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. You want to walk away from me? You want to be your own master? You want to set hedonism as your little G-God? Okay, I'm going to let you have it, and I'm going to judge you for it because you've rejected me. I'm the one who bought you. I know how this works out. And God says, I'm going to do all of these things really strong words. I'm going to read you something. If you're saying, give me an example of a wolf. I'm not going to tell you where this person is, the seminary president. I will tell you that none of our staff attended this seminary, okay? So, take comfort in this. This seminary president getting interviewed asked two i di- will give you two of the questions. The first question was, isn't Christianity without a physical resurrection less powerful and awesome? He didn't believe that. When the message is about love, that's less religion and more philosophy. That was the first question. The second question I'll read you was what, excuse me, the second one is what happens when we die, okay? Here's the first question. For me, the message of Easter is that love is stronger than life or death. That's a much more awesome claim than then they put Jesus in the tomb and then three days later He wasn't there. For Christians for whom the physical resurrection becomes a sort of obsession, that seems to me to be a pretty wobbly faith. What if tomorrow somebody found the body of Jesus in a tomb? Would that mean that Christianity was a lie? Now, faith is stronger than that. Let me tell you, any faith built on somebody resurrecting isn't a wobbly faith. That's my word. Those aren't his. Here's the second question, what happens when we die? I don't know. There may be something, there may be nothing my faith is not tied to some divine promise about an afterlife. People who behave well in this life only to achieve an afterlife, that's a faith driven by a selfish motive. I'm going to be good so that God could reward me with a stick of candy called heaven? For me, living a life of love is driven by the simple fact that love is true, and I'm absolutely certain that when we die, there is not a group of designated people being sent to burn in hell. That does not exist hell is a symbolic reality. When we reject love, we create hell, and hell is what we see around us in the world today in so many forms. Do you see the wolves? They just come right alongside, don't they? We would say love. Man, we got a whole chapter. 1 Corinthians 13 is all about love, and then they come in here, and they bring this in and say, you know what? Heaven is love. Easter isn't about a resurrection or a crucifixion. No, heaven, excuse me, Easter's about love, and we just slide that right in there. And somebody can look at us and say, well, go to, go to 1 Corinthians 13. I mean, love's pretty significant, right? You see these wolves take truths, and they just run it right there. And then we're left to discern it. Here's the deal. We got wolves in our pastures. Know this, we have a shepherd who's a good shepherd. He's the chief shepherd, and he is about walking through the pasture. Our calling is to know his voice, let him provide for us, to feed us. Know the truth, know the signs, know the characteristics of these false teachers, and know what we believe so that when that counterfeit, those plastic words come in, and they come right up alongside our truth, they're going to say, that's not right.
0: You've been listening to the weekly broadcast of Grace Church, an independent Bible teaching church in Wichita Falls, Texas. You can join us for worship Sunday mornings at our campus on Stone Lake Drive in Wichita Falls. Stream services live online at gracechurch.com or subscribe to our podcast published on Apple, Google, and Spotify. From all of us at Grace Church, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.